0: Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Frank Marlow. I am the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics, and we're very happy that you could join us here today. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with the Institute, we are a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer five master's degrees, 18 graduate certificates, and a doctoral program. We are also launching two new um, degree programs, master's degree programs, online this fall. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit us at our website, www.iwp.edu. This event is part of the China series that is sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. And it's my great pleasure this afternoon to introduce Dr. James Anderson. The Honorable James H. Anderson is a, is a former Acting Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and a twice-confirmed presidential appointee. In August 2018, the Senate confirmed Dr. Anderson as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Capabilities. And then in June of 2020, the Senate confirmed him as Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Uh, In that role, Dr. Anderson has played uh, an important role reaching out to uh, the region, traveling to the region many times over uh, his service at the Pentagon. Prior to his most recent Pentagon service, he served as the Vice President for Academic Affairs at Marine Corps University, and as the Dean of Academics at the Marine Corps War College. He has worked as a professor at the George C. Marshall Center for European Security Studies. He was the director of Mideast Policy at the Pentagon. He was a project manager at DFI International, a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and an associate professor at the Command and Staff College at Marine Corps University. Dr. Anderson earned his doctorate in international relations and a master's of arts in law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He is a recipient of numerous professional awards, including the Defense Medal for Distinguished Public Service, the Department's highest award for non-career federal employees. For that uh, I'd like to
1: welcome Dr. James Anderson. Thank you, Frank. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. It's uh, it's a pleasure to to be here uh, with everyone on online on, on Zoom. Uh, I. I want to thank the uh, Institute for World Politics for hosting this event. Um, I had the the pleasure of speaking at an event earlier in person uh, a couple of years ago, and now it's great to be back, even if we're just uh, on uh, on Zoom. And uh, this afternoon, uh, I wanted to share a, a few thoughts about uh, the, uh, the competition we have with the PRC, the People's Republic of China, and how. Uh, how allies and partners uh, factor in uh, to that that great competition. Um, I will be speaking uh, freely with my own personal opinions now uh, that I am out of government service. And um, I will talk probably for about uh, uh, maybe half hour or so, maybe a little bit longer. And then that should allow plenty of time for, uh, uh, ample time for Q and A that that may come up from the, uh, everybody who's, uh, uh, online at this point, um, I'm going I'm to argue. Um, outline the main argument is is quite simple, and it's that uh, you know in this in this competition with the PRC, uh, you know allies and partners play uh, an absolutely crucial role in us uh, prevailing in long term competition, great power competition, and um, they will also play a crucial role if. Um, if deterrence should fail, and that we and if we were unfortunately to face uh, open conflict with the uh, the PRC, the um, I would also add that uh, I think we have, uh, in contrast uh, to the PRC, we the United States has uh, tremendous uh, advantages now with the uh, allies and partners that uh, we have cultivated over many administrations and, and many decades. Um, these uh, these ties are, are based on uh, shared values and, and interests, and um, and they they are they are deep and they are sustained. Um, now, all that said, uh, they also require uh, maintenance. Um, kind of, if you think about a, a guard, in the gardening analogy, right? Uh, alliances are kind of like that. They they need to need some watering, some tender loving care um to make sure that they are as uh, robust as as possible um they are a um necessary uh though not sufficient condition for success uh with respect to uh, our competition with the uh with the prc uh, it is one one big factor uh there are other variables uh some of which are certainly outside of our our control um, maybe not outside of our influence, but outside of our control. So, and, and then I would also add, uh, and I will argue that, um, uh, as strong as these relationships are now, um, these alliances and partnerships, um, they can be stronger still, uh, in the, uh, in the months and the years ahead, uh, the United States needs to think, uh, creatively about how to, uh, to deepen them even, even further. And uh, and as we go through the uh, some observations, I will uh, I will talk about some of these countries um, in particular. I'll, I'll say a few words, for example, about uh, Japan. Uh, I'll, I'll speak to the Republic of Korea. I'll talk about uh, some of our European friends who are active in the uh, in the Indo-Pacific theater. Um, I'll mention some states, some partners. Uh, such as uh, Vietnam, even Mongolia, and, and some others that um, are all part of um, this this equation. Um, first, uh, though, I will uh, set the uh, set the table, so to speak, set the theater with uh, some observations about the uh, Indo-Pacific region. Uh, second, I will talk about our 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 interests uh, our security interests you know, in in the region um thirdly i will talk about a uh, a framework uh, for how to think about maximizing and leveraging and optimizing uh, allies and partners um and uh and then after outlining that framework i will uh, and we'll talk to some specific countries and some specific arrangements or groupings of countries, uh, the Quad, for example, which has uh, gained a lot of attention in, um, in recent, uh, you know, recently. Uh, and then I'll conclude by looking in, uh, offering some final observations and, and uh, talking a bit about the future. So let me start by um, setting the theater a little bit, the uh, Indo-Pacific Theater um is uh is defined by certain uh, key characteristics uh obviously the uh, uh the tyranny of the of the of distance is uh, is one of those we've been, uh, been dealing with that for a long time as long as the united states has been a, a pacific power um and even today in as uh, we're well into the twenty first century the tyranny of the distance imposes uh, significant limitations in terms of travel time and um, jet lag and, and uh, other uh, other other issues that we just have to uh, to deal with the um the the actors in the region are uh, are significant um, there are um, actually five uh, nuclear powers in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, Russia, which is a Eurasian power, is certainly one of them. Uh, the PRC has a uh, somewhat smaller uh, nuclear arsenal, but it uh, its trajectory is of considerable concern to us. Um, we, uh, we estimate uh, that they are uh, in the low hundreds, or about 200 uh, nuclear weapons, and uh, the publicly available estimates by... Uh, Defense Intelligence Agency director is that they will uh, l- at least double uh, in the coming uh, coming years uh, India uh, a strong u.s partner and Pakistan are nuclear powers um, and um, and also of course uh, North Korea has uh, demonstrated its uh, nuclear capability um, in addition to the vast distances and the presence of uh, nuclear powers um There are uh, a variety of uh, territorial disputes that uh, have not been settled, that are ongoing. Uh, And uh, those include, for example, uh, some of the Northern Islands, uh, Japan, uh, with respect to to Russia, Uh, certainly the Senkakus with respect to uh, Japan and uh, the PRC. Um, We have been reminded uh, recently, in fact, this, uh, this past summer, about the uh, long, long, and enduring border disputes between the PRC and uh, India, uh, they go all the way back to 1962 and the border conflict they had then. They've been uh, flared anew at times, and, and certainly did so uh, this past uh, past summer. Uh, also, uh, uh, also a, a characteristic of the of, of the region. Um, China is uh has become a you know a, a, a main player uh, or main concern in the era of uh, uh, strategic competition. Um, their uh, their growth rate has been uh, remarkable for for decades. They have uh, lifted hundreds of millions of people uh, Chinese out of poverty, which is a good thing. Um, but they have also uh, um, embarked on sort of a campaign of um, the China dream uh, in pursuit of the great rejuvenation and that has led to some uh, unfortunate uh, bellicose rhetoric and, uh, and uh, Aggressive and coercive uh, behavior um, they clearly have uh, uh, Hegemonic aspirations uh, for the indo-pacific region uh, and, and and beyond which have uh, significant implications for the united states and uh, its allies. Now, one of the things that defines uh, the theater kind of in the absence is um, there is no uh, NATO-like structure as opposed to the European theater. Um, And this is interesting uh, for a variety of reasons. There's there's actually no counterpart to the uh, EU either, the European Union, uh, which has its own defense and foreign policy initiatives. There is uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, ASEAN, And there are other other groupings. Um, There was historically uh, CETO, uh, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, which uh, existed from the sort of mid 1950s, uh, pursuant to our, our concerns about the spread of communism in Southeast Asia. And CETO endured um, into the uh, the mid-70s. It had some value to the United States. Um, it actually provided us uh, um, some rationale for um, our engagement in the uh, the Vietnam conflict. Um, but it also sort of lacked uh, kind of an inherent uh, cohesion among members. And in fact, most of the CETO, um members were not in Southeast Asia at all. Uh, they were you know at farther afield. Um there were a couple. There was uh, Thailand, for example, was uh, was a member. Um but there is no CETO now, there's no NATO-like structure in uh, Indo-Pacific, but um um there is some uh, kind of preliminary talk of, of maybe there should be in the future we can uh, we can talk about that more if there are perhaps some questions uh, on that um there is a uh, also a, kind of the ever-present uh, legacy of conflict um, that uh, defines the uh, Indo-Pacific region. That you know, we we have uh, going back to Imperial Japan, uh, strong memories, living memories still uh, of that. Uh, there's certainly U.S. Uh, conflict in uh, in Korea from uh, fifty to fifty-three and the enduring legacy there uh, as well as our inv- in, uh, involvement in uh, in Vietnam um, from the early 60s up until uh, the fall of Saigon in uh, in 1975 so um the past is uh is, is still with us or as uh, the american author once said william faulkner you know the past is not dead the past is not even past so we have to uh, we have to deal with these uh, kind of these legacy issues that also help to define the Indo-Pacific theater. The um, probably the um, the last uh, significant kind of defining feature of the region is uh, again the uh, I alluded to it earlier is just the, the tremendous uh, economic growth uh, and population growth, and uh, it's really uh, extraordinary. Uh, with respect to china and other nations as well uh, obviously uh, obviously uh countries like uh south korea and, and japan and um have uh and, and now vietnam and indonesia and uh, certainly taiwan uh, have all contributed to this um uh, remarkable um burgeoning uh, economic ties, uh, which, uh, which leads us uh, directly to some of our uh, interests as uh, from the United States uh, perspective with respect to the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, we, are, we are a Pacific nation. Um, we are an Indo-Pacific nation, um, and we have uh, clear uh, economic interests in the region, and that also means that um, we have uh, a clear interest in uh, access. Um, in freedom of navigation in maritime uh, The ability to uh, access the region and keep maritime channels uh, Of trade uh, open Uh, and these are these are sort of core core interests that the United States has Um, We have um, a variety of of treaty partners uh, uh, defense alliances we actually have uh, those with um, uh, with the government of Japan, the Republic of South Korea, uh, with the Philippines, with Thailand, um, and also with uh, with uh, with Australia, and um, these uh, these go back uh, quite some time. Um, they uh, they uh, most of them these alliances go back to the most of them go back to the uh, the 1950s. We also have a lot of. Uh, security uh, uh, partnerships um, that are not quite alliances but nonetheless uh, reflect uh, common interests defense interests and and uh, and values and so um, those again involve a, a lot of uh, a lot of different states uh, some of them quite some newer than others uh, and i'll I'll talk about those uh, some more in a, in a few minutes. So, in the context of having these uh, these security partners, um, uh, and the importance of access, it's, it really means access to uh, uh, to bases and places, right? For permanently deployed forward forces, uh, we have an enduring interest there, and also the ability to uh, to rotate uh, forces in and out of the theater. Uh, a good example of the latter would be, for example. The uh, rotational forces that we have with uh, Australia, Uh, the Marines in Darwin, which uh, is now uh, been going strong for uh, several years and um, is uh, sort of plateaued out of uh, about 2,500 Marines um, on this rotation on a yearly basis. It was somewhat less this past year because of COVID um but it uh it's an important uh uh example of uh, kind of where some of our forces are uh down uh, down in the south now in the uh, or we have uh the context of uh deterring uh aggression uh from the prc and in north korea we we clearly have a an interest in maintaining uh conventional deterrence um, and this has been an issue of considerable uh, concern for the United States. Uh, certainly, with respect to the PRC, uh, uh, recent recent gains by the PLA and some of its capabilities, we uh, want to make sure that the United States retains its uh, its conventional uh, deterrence. Um, and deterrence is a is a function of several several factors, uh, you know, capabilities, uh, meaning actual, you know, military hardware and software um, that could be uh, used in the event of a contingency or an emergency. Um, it also involves uh, issues of credibility. Uh, more in the psychological realm, uh, that our would-be competitors know, uh, must know that we are, are serious about depend, uh, defending our our treaty allies and our interests uh, for deterrence to uh, be sustained and to work. Um, and in addition to the capability and the credibility, capability and credibility, there's also a kind of a communications element as well, um, where they need to know kind of. Our thinking, and we need to know their thinking. Um, and uh, without that sort of understanding, that mutual communication, um, communication or deterrence, conventional deterrence can can also fail quite uh, quite terribly. Um, clearly, uh, I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't mention uh, North Korea as a uh, security concern, and uh, we have uh, interests. Uh, in the uh, complete irrevocable and uh, transparent uh, denuclearization of the peninsula uh, by, by North Korea. And uh, in this, we, uh, we share an interest uh, with uh, the PRC and uh, one would hope as time goes by that there could be more uh, efforts uh, pressure by Beijing on Pyongyang um, in, uh, in this regard. Um, I would uh I would also note uh, by way of passing that with respect to the uh, uh, the PRC uh, does not have anything like what the United States has in terms of allies and partners. In fact, it has one formal uh, um, alliance, defense alliance, and that is with North Korea and goes back, uh, the treaty going back to uh, 1960. Uh, PRC does have some uh, uh, some friends, um, some long-standing friends and countries that it has good relations with. Or in some cases, improving relations, um, but certainly nothing in terms of the uh, scale, and the depth, and the uh, the breadth of uh, alliances that the United States has. Okay, so having uh, kind of looked at the theater and uh, or and covered uh, some of the uh, the alliances um, or enduring interests that the United States has in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, let me talk a little bit about uh, a framework for thinking about allies and partners, and I think its uh, framework is can be can be useful uh, because they help kind of clarify our thinking. They can help to prioritize, and they can help us to make um, sort of sense of uh, a lot of different uh, questions and and, uh, and 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 activities that are uh, ongoing. So. The first point is in the context of um, defense cooperation, um, the scale uh, of activities that we engage with allies and partners um, in the Indo-Pacific region and, and frankly, elsewhere around the world is uh, is vast. Uh, uh, it, it involves an extraordinary range of, of activities. Um, and let me just mention a, a few of them. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, key leader engagements, uh, sometimes called KLEs for short, is uh, is crucially important, uh, whereby we go there, senior leaders, uh, they come here, uh, we uh, meet face-to-face or Zoom in the time of COVID, uh, a constant maintenance, ongoing dialogue, sharing of common concerns and common sight picture. Um, and this is... Uh, uh, this happens with d o d officials with state department officials with n s c officials um it's uh it's it's part of the uh uh ongoing uh toolkit that we have uh we also have uh certainly foreign military sales um to the uh the tune of about fifty five billion uh a year uh globally that is uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, military sales in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, that's another uh, key part of the um, uh, the framework. Um, we also uh, we, we exercise and we experiment with uh, with allies. Uh, you know, for example, in uh, in Thailand, we've been doing uh, Cobra Gold exercises on an annual basis for uh, for decades. Um, and in a similar vein, we we actually have hundreds of exercise. Uh, most of them are sort of small scale, but uh, others uh, quite large. Uh, not only Cobra Gold, but uh, certainly on the uh, the Korean Peninsula with the uh, Republic of Korea, we exercise all the time with the government of Japan, the Self Defense Forces. Um, and this is uh, this is really important for uh, keeping our forces uh, ready and promoting. Um, uh, interoperability among uh, like like-minded uh, countries. Um, in addition to exercises and, and key leader engagements, we have um, um, a lot of uh, intel cooperation and uh, you know, most notably uh, we have something called the Five Eyes. Um, dates back many decades. I actually grew out of uh, relationships in World War II where we work very closely with with the Brits, the Canadians, New uh, New Zealanders um, and the the Aussies uh, to ensure that we're sharing very sensitive intelligence. Um, There's a variety of sort of information sharing, not quite as uh, sensitive, that goes on with uh, allies and partners uh, in in the region. Um, And that's uh, kind of the thinking behind the uh, promotion of various uh, fusion centers um, that that cover uh, cover a variety of transnational issues. Um, for example, there's one in uh, that, that Singapore, uh, one of our partners, is hosting on uh, on counterterrorism information, um, um, and uh, that's uh, that's a relatively new initiative, and that's uh, that's really important. Just uh, one one example there. Um, in addition to information sharing, there's also, um, a lot of, uh, yeah, building partnership capacity, uh, so-called, uh, section three, three, three activities under, uh, under title 10, um, that, uh, cover, uh, things like maritime domain awareness and, uh, and, and, and training and, and exercises and, and all the rest uh also vitally important and in somewhat of a longer time horizon um there's uh international professional military education uh, i pme whereby you know a lot of uh, a number of these uh, countries in the indo-pacific region uh, send their students to our uh, professional military institutions both uh, Command and Staff Colleges and War Colleges at Maxwell and uh, Leavenworth and Newport and Quantico and National Defense University. Uh, There's even a uh, Vietnamese cadet at the uh, Air Force Academy. Will be the first uh, Vietnamese uh, student to graduate from there in the year uh, 2024. Um, And this is this is also very important for uh, uh, building relationships over time and uh, in awareness and and it's something that uh, that the PRC is uh, has been watching and and they are trying to sort of emulate in some ways with some uh, professional military education courses of their own Uh, but they uh, they are not nearly as uh, lengthy or as in depth or I would argue as uh as robust as our international pme it's the type of thing that uh, can pay dividends over over the long term it's something that um, former secretary Esper uh, put a great deal of emphasis on uh, to make sure that uh, we were to provide um, our international partners uh, those opportunities with uh, within the United States um, there's also something called uh, miso. Uh, military information support operations that are done in peacetime. Um, that's another uh, part of the uh, the toolkit. And uh, we work on certain narratives and, you know, we, we coordinate with, uh, with uh, some of our allies and, and partners on uh, these sort of diplomatic uh, information efforts in, in that uh, competitive uh, space. So uh, in this context, um, uh, so many activities uh, that uh, cut across uh, allies and partners, um, and one of the things that uh, I was involved with in my previous capacity was uh, trying to um, sort of synchronize and sort of harmonize and prioritize uh, these activities in, in a way that uh, really helped to, um, to maximize our leverage. And in that context, um, that's where the department came out uh, last fall with the uh, the guidance for the development of allies and uh, and partners, the so-called Gdap, the Gdap, uh, which was a document that looked at all these activities and uh, really articulated some uh, some preferences and, and and some priorities from a policy perspective. Uh, again, to Uh, sort of harmonize and and synchronize. Uh, Let let me give you one example of why why that can be important. So going back to uh, the uh, KLEs, the key leader engagements, uh, as as mentioned, we send hundreds, um, uh, thousands of of, of key leaders uh, engagements uh, every year to all these countries. And sometimes um, it can, you know, You know, create a form of uh, whiplash for some of our friends and allies if they have uh, senior Americans going over to visit or in discussions uh, and if the Americans are not sort of conveying uh, similar messages. you know, if uh, a senior official from OSD, uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for uh, for Asian Indo-Pacific, uh, goes over, and then he's followed by uh, Assistant Secretary of, of the Army, or the Secretary of the Army, or somebody from the, you know, the Joint Staff for a military mil talk. If the if if the talking points, the messages uh, are not the same, it can be very uh, very confusing. And so this is. This um, this is really a challenge for uh, a nation such as the United States, again, because of our many relationships and also simply just the size of our uh, defense establishment and our um and the number of people we have engaging it's important that we all sort of have the same sheet of music uh and that that really was uh, a big part of the emphasis behind the uh, development of the gdap which um, the dep- department uh, finalized uh, last fall and of course uh, the current administration will you know make its own assessment and they'll they'll keep what they want to keep and, uh, and they'll change what modify their, what they want to modify in terms of, you know, how to approach allies and partners, but I would submit to you that there will be a great deal of uh, Continuity on uh, matters of policy. There certainly will be and certainly have been in recent weeks uh, sort of the change in in tone shall we say uh, but a lot those uh, those core interests and those uh, those common uh, Common approaches to allies and partners are are really something that uh, they're, they're backed by a lot of uh, bipartisan consensus, um, and which manifests itself in, again, uh, increasing budget. For example, the uh, to uh, to deal with the uh, the growth of PLA activities, and uh, as we become a, a little bit more more focused on the activities or the capabilities that we want to develop. Uh, along with allies and partners in the uh, indo pacific region, so uh, having uh, uh, outlined uh, kind of uh, the, the the toolkit of uh, activities uh, some of the main activities that we uh, we engage with and it uh, 's not an exhaustive list there are some other things that we kind of do below the radar, um, but uh, those are some of the the big ones: uh, intel sharing, foreign military sales, key leader engagements, uh, Section three three three. And let me, let me mention one one more is the uh, uh, the State Partnership Program uh, that we have uh, with a lot of our uh, uh, partners in the Indo Pacific. And the uh, the State Partnership Program is something that. Uh, with our National Guard, um, uh, dates back to the uh, uh, immediate post-Cold War period in the early '90s, and started with the Baltics, and and it uh, it is a, a program in which uh, the National Guard units in U.S. states are paired with uh, foreign countries, um, and it it uh, involves uh, a lot of uh, familiarization and and dialogue and training and exercises. And uh, they are sustained uh, over time uh, so that those relationships can be strengthened. And right now we have uh, in excess of 80 uh, partnerships, uh, uh, state partnership programs uh, around the world in uh, the Indo-Pacific theater. We have uh, just over a a dozen, Uh, for example, uh, the state of Oregon uh, partners with Vietnam mongolia is partnered with the state of alaska uh nepal with the state of utah sri lanka with uh, montana um and uh these uh are really a uh, small footprint and uh and not very expensive uh but they pay dividends uh, over time now uh, these uh these relationships they're mutually uh mutually beneficial both to uh you know exercise our national guard uh, and also our uh, and our partners so um let me uh, move on and, and talk uh, briefly uh, about uh, a couple of the uh, key relationships and the countries that we we have in the region and uh, and some of the issues that uh, are uh, front and center um clearly uh, the government of Japan and uh, would would start there you know we have a relationship a security relationship that dates back to the 50s and has in an alliance treaty that goes uh, back to the 60-plus years now. Um, it, is, uh, it is no accident that uh, Secretary of State uh, and the Secretary of Defense made their first, uh, and the Biden administration, made their first visit overseas to uh, speak to both uh, the government of Japan, to visit Japan, and also the uh, Republic of Korea. Uh, With Japan, um, we have um, uh, a number of bases Um, in uh, mainland Japan. uh, We have uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, four deployed. Uh, In in Japan, we have uh, approximately 50,000 U.S. military personnel uh, somewhere in Japan, whether mainland Japan or Okinawa, Japan. Uh, we probably in addition to that, if you count up contractors and uh, uh, dependents uh, probably that number rises from fifty thousand to uh to a hundred thousand um, we uh we look we work very closely with the, uh, the Japanese uh, forces on a whole range of uh, of common interests um, they are very sophisticated partners they uh, you know they they have been um, maturing their uh their uh their defense forces uh you know they they have advanced weapons they, uh, you know things like the f-35 they uh they co co-produce um the sm-3 alpha you know which is important for uh for missile defense purposes uh so they are uh, strong and reliable and uh, dependable uh um, defense partner. Uh, all that said, we, we do have, uh, you know, occasional frictions. Uh, in the defense relationship, uh, we have a kind of an ongoing uh, agreement uh, to reposition some of our forces um, within Okinawa and also from Okinawa to uh, to Guam and also to, uh, to mainland Japan. And uh, sort of the timing and sequencing and who pays for that and all the rest uh you know that that comes up in uh in discussions but that's um you know very much part and parcel of, of dealing with uh with allies and partners uh japan for its part is uh obviously very concerned about uh, the prc as i mentioned briefly earlier uh in particular uh you know the intrusions by the prc into the senkakus um, in addition to uh, Japan, let me uh, say a couple words about uh, South Korea uh, obviously uh, long standing uh, defense relationship there is uh, with our with our treaty partner um, and they um, they host uh, about 29,000 uh, American service personnel uh, mostly uh, mostly army uh, they purchase a wide variety of sophisticated uh, sophisticated American weapons to include the uh, f-35 uh, they have uh, missile defense capabilities um, uh, one of the uh, one of the big issues uh, over time is sort of the transfer of operational control of uh, 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 South Korean forces uh, to South Korea um, And that's uh, ongoing uh, discussions. We've had this sort of a complicated arrangement over many decades going back to the the UN-United Nations uh, command relationships. Um, And really for the South Koreans, this boils down to... um, You know issues of sensitive issues of uh, sovereignty. Uh, So those are those are being worked out Um, I would say in the uh, the context of talking about both uh, uh, Japan and South Korea, you know, there are uh, Tensions between the two. Uh, This this involves some uh, some legacy issues and reparations that go back uh, historically and uh, can have sort of real current uh, consequences. Um, for example, there was a concern uh, recently about uh, kind of uh, some in sh- intel sharing between Japan and, and Korea. Um, and uh, that was kind of uh, uh, at issue, uh, because of some of these uh, broader historical legacy issues. Um, so that's something that, uh, you know, comes up with allies and partners, uh, people have different histories and they don't all Always agree on uh, on everything. Um, now, in addition to um, uh, Republic of Korea and uh, Japan, uh, obviously we have very close relationships with uh, uh, with Australia. I mentioned Darwin, the rotation there. Uh, Australia has been very uh, very active and really taking a leadership role in some respects in their neighborhood and working with uh, partners like Papua New Guinea and and so forth. And we're very, uh, very supportive of that. We welcome their uh, their efforts. Um, they are very concerned about uh, the PRC and uh, some very heavy handed attempts by uh, Beijing to uh, influence the Australian political uh, uh, system. Um, Australia historically has been a very strong uh, ally United States. They fought with us uh, you know, everywhere we go on the same battlefield right beside us Uh, so that uh, that relationship is uh, very very strong Um, as well let me mention a couple of the uh, uh, well let me mention a a word about the 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 Philippines another ally we have Um, you know that that relationship has gone under an evolution over time um, Post-Cold War in the 1990s, uh, we, uh, we we withdrew from uh, Clark Air Base and Subic Bay in the Philippines, um, but we have maintained a very robust uh, defense re- relationship uh, with the PI, um, and that's anchored in uh, a lot of visits. It's also, we've given them... Uh, and a lot of support and training and advising in their uh, uh, counterterrorism efforts uh, over time, um, which uh, which they uh, continue uh, to this day. Uh, not without uh, some sensitivities. sensitivities uh, in uh, uh just last year, for example, the uh, um, uh, Manila was thinking about terminating something called the Visiting Forces Agreement, uh, the VFA. Uh, that caught, uh, uh, that is, that helps us sort of uh, maintain a robust alliance and uh, uh, thankfully after a lot of work they agreed to suspend that termination um and uh and that, that's a good news story um but there uh you know there are, are concerns uh uh about uh you know the pi certainly has uh, a lot of concerns about uh chinese uh, prc efforts to encroach on uh their region of the world uh, and uh you know those are claims very expansive claims by the prc that you know their so-called nine nine line uh that uh lay claim to virtually entire um, the south china sea so um the, the pi is another uh, key uh, key ally in terms of partners uh we have some uh, some newer partners that we're working with um in recent years uh, certainly uh one more interesting cases is uh is uh, is vietnam uh the united states uh recently celebrated uh, uh, 25 years of uh, formal diplomatic relations in 2020, um, and the defense relationship has uh, has grown and uh, matured in the last uh, few years uh, in easing and ending of the arms embargo we uh we now have some uh, some port visits uh, uh, still somewhat limited but we have uh uh, uh considerable um, key leader engagements uh, we provided uh the with a, a cutter um we uh we do some uh, limited uh limited training um and they this is something that uh the, the vietnamese are very interested in given that uh, again going back to PRC uh, PRC uh, claims in the region um, They uh, they look to us. Uh, they also have uh, 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 A history with uh, the PRC going back to the uh, uh, the open conflict the border conflict they had in uh, 1979 um, Couple other the uh, the partnerships, uh, you know, some that may not immediately come to mind, but you uh, you know uh, uh, Mongolia, for example, um, you know sandwiched as it is between the uh, PRC and the Russian Federation, uh, we actually have a defense relationship with them. They uh, like to think of them the United States as the uh, you know kind of their their third uh, third country uh, as a way to uh, assert their independence and so we have we have done some uh, defense activities uh, with uh, with Mongolia. And um, Actually, we've had a, a couple of our secretaries of defense uh, visit Mongolia, Secretary Gates and uh, Secretary Esper uh, in, in uh, Just uh, just a couple of years ago. Now, we add when they go to Mongolia, the traditional gift by the Mongolians is a, uh, is a Is a horse is an actual horse and then it's always kind of a, a big deal when the Secretary of Defense, US Secretary of Defense gets to uh, to name the horse. I think uh, I think Rumsfeld, when he went, uh, I meant to say Rumsfeld earlier, not Gates. He named the horse Montana because he thought the landscape of uh, Mongolia reminded him of of Montana. And uh, Secretary Esper named the horse um, uh, Marshall after George Marshall. Um, so uh, just a, a small uh, bit of trivia there. Um, so these... Uh, these are some of the, um, certainly by no means all, there's certainly uh, we have relations with Malaysia and Indonesia Um, uh, or other other examples. Um, uh, One key thing that I'll mention is uh, is our encouragement of having the Brits and the French uh, and even the Germans or European friends take a larger presence in the the Indo-Pacific theater and all three countries, for example, have uh, contributed to the uh, um, helping monitor the illegal ship-to-ship transfers of uh, North Korea and and oil shipments. So they play a very constructive uh, uh, role there. let me turn to a, just a couple observations before we get to final observations. Before we get to Q and A, briefly, um, you know, I, I, again, this is sort of our necessary you know, condition for for winning the competition long term, which is multifaceted against the, the PRC. Uh, working with with allies is uh, and partners. They, they come with challenges. Uh, there there can be even be dangers. Right, you don't want to. Uh, a wayward ally to to lead you into a conflict that you don't want to be in, right? So that. Uh that is something that is uh, is uh, to be mindful of. At the same time, well, we want uh, our allies to do more and our partners to do more. We want to avoid uh, kind of a dependency syndrome. We want them to stand up and be able to defend their own interests. And you know, for example, uh, in the news today, uh, senior Taiwan officials saying that uh, uh, Taiwan is is ready to fight to the end if if you know, God forbid conflict were to break out with the PRC. Um, now that's that is the way it should be. They need to take ownership of their own uh, self-defense forces. And of course, the United States uh, helps with the uh, long-standing commitments with the uh, Taiwan Relations Act and the uh, support we provide there. Um, the Working with allies and partners requires uh, confidence in ourselves. Uh, there is, in some quarters, kind of this per- perception that uh, uh, China's rise is implacable, unstoppable, and, you know, predestined to uh, to achieve global dominance. Well, um, not necessarily. I mean, history is not uh, foreordained. And as long as there are countries and decision makers of free will, um, you know, there's a lot that can be done to satisfy uh, our interests and those of our allies and partners and and part of that is just a, a matter of confidence because we do have a lot of advantages uh, over over the PRC but let me uh, let me uh, let me pause there uh, for uh, for questions and discussion uh, dr. Marlowe over over to you
2: Frank I
0: can't hear you there we go so I must have clicked it twice. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Anderson. I appreciate uh, your time and your very thoughtful uh, comments. I want to comments. I want to offer a couple of questions that we're seeing on the on the screen here. Um, I think the first one that I think a uh, couple um, lumped together. Uh, what role do you do you see the ideological or information warfare dimension play? In U.S. grand strategy regarding the PRC competition, um, and what are related to that? Another question: What are China's ideological critical vulnerabilities that we need to exploit in our alliance and partner uh, relationships?
1: Both uh, both great questions. So, the um, they they play a, a very important role. Um, there is a, an, an ideological uh, informational component to this uh, this competition. Um, it's something that, uh, frankly, uh, the U.S. government struggles struggles with, um, and uh, I'd say it's something that we kind of grappled with uh, in the previous administration, but other administrations also. Uh, also have challenges there, and it's it's challenging for a, a number of reasons. One is that uh, um, has to, frankly has to do with American culture. We are we are talkative people, um, and we're there are many voices, right? And uh, trying to uh, convey uh, consistent uh, messaging uh, in the information sphere in a in a disciplined way is uh, is uh, can be a, a tall challenge, and that uh, goes back to my earlier point about. Uh, key leader engagements and the importance of kind of having common themes and common messages when we talk with our allies and partners uh, about the the PRC. Um, there's a there's a real competition of uh, of narratives here. You know, you know, the Washington consensus, and the Beijing consensus. Um, I, I think the the good news here is that there's a, a bit of an awakening. Uh, not only uh, in the Indo-Pacific theater, but even more broadly in Latin America and Africa and elsewhere, that uh, you know, dealings with the PRC come with a cost. Um, you know, the, the bargain, PRC says, PRC says, you know, uh, we will give you uh, uh, money and, and infrastructure, but we must have your resources. Um, and, and getting the money, you know, and, and the PRC does have uh, a lot of cash it can turn around, can be very attractive. But um, these, uh, these countries that are making, have made deals for the PRC uh, are beginning to realize that, uh, you know, it comes, can come with a significant cost to include, for example, a, a debt trap. So to the extent that with our information efforts, uh, we can sort of draw attention to um, and amplify some of the heavy-handedness uh, by the PRC, simply shine a spotlight, as it were, on uh, the costs. Um, it can be uh, can very be very important. I think uh, another dimension of this is that you have to sort of cultivate other voices uh, to stand up and and uh, and. and just frankly you know call it as it is with respect to uh, coercive activities by the prc more voices uh better right um and and i'm not only talking about government voices but also the extent of you know think tanks and civil society uh you know here and abroad um all that is uh you know avenues uh, again in the information space Uh, To do uh, to do much uh, to do much better So let me let me leave it at that
0: Great, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna abuse my own role uh, here and and ask you a question myself Uh, Wonder if you could speak to How in your time at the Pentagon? um, In your time in the administration you saw uh, Changes within the US government writ large the State Department the other uh, organs of the federal government into taking the, the China problem more seriously and how did you how would you characterize your relationship and uh, the ability of the administration as a whole to pursue a consistent strategic uh, integrated trade strategy
1: so let me uh, let me start a little bit narrowly from a, a DoD perspective then I'll sort of broaden out to a, a larger uh, NSC whole, whole of government um, I, I think one of the uh, one of the more enduring and important things we did organizationally uh, within uh, the Department of Defense was uh, the creation of uh, a DASD for China. Now, uh, the, uh, I know the acronyms here, but a DASD is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. It's a very senior official. It's a two and a half, three-star equivalent. And uh, we, we created that, that position. I mean, previously China issues have been sort of covered with different uh, different uh, groupings and different offices, but having a, kind of a central uh, individual senior official uh, who would uh, eat, sleep, and breathe uh, PRC issues on a daily basis, um, uh, I think was uh, was really important, and it's something that it's, uh, is is going to endure uh, in subsequent uh, in subsequent. Uh, iterations, uh, administrations. Um, that individual, for example, that that office um, developed uh, direct uh, communications with Chinese PRC PLA counterparts, um, and that is really important because in the in the era of, of great power competition, uh, having those channels of communication. Uh, they existing so that we can reduce the potential for miscalculation, which is a shared interest we have uh, with China. Uh, it's really important to have those channels uh, and to exercise them. Um, more broadly, uh, I'll be a little bit self-critical here. I think with the uh, you know the broader U.S. government approach. Um, I think we got the the big picture right uh, in terms of kind of the strategy and the policy. Uh, some of that has actually been declassified recently in January of 2021, um, sort of the uh, or at least partially declassified and can be readily viewed. A uh, very firm approach to the PRC, identifying uh, sort of desired end states and relationships and so on and so forth and You know, taking a more assertive approach was uh, the right way to go. I think where uh, we kind of ran out of time um, has to do more at the level of uh, operationalizing uh, the strategy. Uh, It it is one thing to sort of get the policy statements uh, right and to outline in broad terms uh, the strategy, uh, but to really... uh, get into, you know, how are we going to do this on a sustained basis in a resource constrained environment uh, over time. um, That is something that is, uh, you know, it's, it's a tall order and it's something that, uh, you know, hopefully the United States government is going to get better and better at uh, over time. You know, frankly, in terms of great power competition, um, there were a lot of kind of, there was some muscle memory from the Cold War, but a lot of that had atrophied. Uh, so we had to uh, kind of relearn uh, a lot of that in, uh, in recent years.
0: Thank you. Uh, I think we might have time for, for one more. Uh, and so what I'll do is, is sort of take a couple of similar questions and kind of uh, lump them together. Um, first one is, would there be any value in categorizing the great power competition as one between democracy versus uh, the CCP? Uh, and do you think that would be effective, winning the hearts and minds of the Chinese people, or do you feel that would be unlikely? Um, similarly, uh, what role do you see India as the, the world's uh, largest democracy? Can it offer some sort of uh, opportunity there to build on that that sort of ideological dimension of the conflict? Um, and then finally, how do we? Um, balance the promotion of democracy with our, in our, uh, Indo-Pacific partners with the development of the military capabilities. Sometimes these two can come, uh, at odds and in, in situations where they are at odds with the one another, where should we be prioritizing
1: their effort? Uh, Frank, on, on the last one, they, you said democracy and what was it?
0: Developing the military capability. So it's, okay. it's the question of, of, or is it more important that we develop robust military capabilities? Of these countries or develop the, the democracy side of, of that, which one should win out.
1: Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, I mean, ideally on the last question, uh, we promote both, right? And uh, in, in some cases, uh, we've seen over time that uh, you know we, we can do exactly that and a lot, of the, a lot of these where we can at least assist uh, sovereign states in that direction. I mean, you look at the, uh, uh the promotion, uh, you know, in, in South Korea and, and Taiwan, for example, uh, over time, uh, you know, they'd moved from very authoritarian regimes into, uh, you know, mature and, and prosperous, uh, democracies. And that's a positive trend and the United States had a, uh, a hand in that, uh, over time. Um, we, you know, we sometimes have to make uh, hard choices in an imperfect world. Uh, I mentioned Vietnam earlier. Vietnam is not a democracy. Uh, Vietnam is politically a communist na- nation, uh, but geopolitically we do have a kind of a common interest uh, with respect to uh, you know, PRC uh, adventurism and, and coercive efforts. Uh, so therefore, we are going to have a you know a calibrated defense relationship with them, and hope that uh, over time they would uh, uh, get on a more democratic. Path uh, with respect to um, now India is uh, you know fascinating fascinating development um, with respect to the strategic partnership which I would say is probably uh, the most important part partnership we have is um, this really dates back to the um, uh, the two thousands. And uh, really began uh, at least on the defense side in earnest with the uh, the Bush administration, um, and then this was uh, certainly uh, continued and and helped along by the Obama administration, and continued to mature um, with respect to uh, the the, uh, the Trump administration and. Um, there's a lot of defense cooperation with, uh, with New Delhi. And uh, because of that, there's, uh, you know, in, in a time of crisis for New Delhi, um, last summer uh, with respect to their line of actual control and the border dispute with, uh, with the PRC, uh, we were able to help in some very tangible ways uh, with their self-defense uh, efforts. Uh, to include uh, information sharing and, and things like cold weather gear and tents and, uh, and, and assistance of that uh, of, of that nature. Um, there are also, you know, there's still some legacy issues with uh, with India. I mean, they had a long partnership uh, with uh, the then Soviet Union and had a lot of uh, equipment still to that day. And you know, there's some issues there. But uh, you know, India's democratic uh, maturation is uh, is a big uh, plus. Um, and uh, it is something that is going to really uh, be a concern and, uh, and should be a concern for the uh, the PRC in the fullness of time. Briefly, on the last question, you know, the the Chinese Communist Party is, uh, one would hope over time, would uh, would moderate from within. I mean, I think there's some things that, you know, we can do kind of to model behavior and, and have confidence in our own institutions and do things in the information space. Um, But ultimately, uh, I think we need uh, some humility in terms of the limits of what we can do, at least in the short term there. Um, Again, I'm not saying we should shy away from the information space, just uh, kind of uh, make sure that we have eyes wide open and we don't want to sort of do things that would be in the near term, anyway, counterproductive. It's uh, it is an ideological struggle. There is a you know a different model, and we have to be uh, assured of our own sort confidence in our own system, and um, and draw attention to the weaknesses and the shortcoming of the uh, PRC and their their uh, and their behavior. Um, and they have a lot of problems. Uh, I mean, beyond the defense sphere, in terms of pollution, in terms of the middle income trap. Uh, that they're going to have to face in the years ahead. So, you know, you know we, seek, uh, we seek to prevail in the competition, and we don't believe that the competition necessarily needs to lead to conflict, but we need to be ready if, uh, in fact, it, uh, it does so. So I think uh, we're probably about out of time, and let me, uh, let me lead it there. Okay.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Anderson, thank you very much for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. And be, uh, check your email for future events. We hope to see you in another one very
1: soon. Thanks. Frank, uh, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate uh, IWP hosting and really uh, appreciate everybody on, online uh, listening in and also the uh, great great questions. Uh, have a, a good evening or wherever you are, might be. Maybe it's a good morning or good afternoon. Take care.